due to losses sustained. Um, obviously, you know, that's to be expected um, and hopefully losses aren't severe. Um, the other alternative, um, at least from my perspective, is that, um, as I understand, a large um, uh, percentage of uh, TDF personnel are former combat veterans um, from the uh, War in Donbass over the past eight years, and they form the core of TDF personnel. And obviously, it's going to take you know four to six months minimum to train you know a conscript with no military experience. But what I was thinking was, you know, could this be indicative of the Ukrainians having you know after you know about two months, you know, two months and a week or so now? having fully brought up some of these former combat veterans, having fully brought them back up to speed and fully equipped them. They're now ready for, you know, full scale frontline service. Um, I just wanted to get y'all's thoughts on those two possibilities. It's a distinct possibility. And I know you have not a lot of time, so I'm going to try and make it as quick as I can. Uh, There's really three elements of the Ukrainian military. There's the Ukrainian armed forces. Those are professional soldiers like we have in every country, right? Those are the top trained, top equipped Etc. Beyond that, you have the National Guard of Ukraine, which, because of the war in the Donbass, often has considerable combat experience, but they're going to get less equipment, they're going to get less training. After that, you have the Territorial Defense Force, which is really a people's militia sprung into being very quickly, and you have a mixture of people with experience, people without experience, and those are the least equipped and the least trained. It's been about two months. We've had a couple of TDF fighters in this space who have discussed how there's increased opportunities for training. Um, in other areas of Ukraine to kind of bring them up more to snuff because there's been supply issues. At least there's one guy who I think he was running around for two months without a gun, basically. And after the training, then they're kind of integrated with those veterans that you've talked about and become an effective fighting unit. Uh, I suspect that the every unit, as you go down and as call it experience, is designed to sort of free up people from the unit above them. So the Ukrainian military, they're at the front lines already. There's not a lot more places for them to go, right? Except we start looking at offensives, at which point the National Guard of Ukraine can say, hey, we can hold the line in these places and we'll let these other guys do the offensives. And then they goes, oh, well, the National Guard of Ukraine was doing some backline logistics and supplies and holding less critical areas. Well, let's put the TDF in there because we now trust that they're not going to shoot their feet off and then they can at least hold the area while the National Guard of Ukraine moves to front lines that are less active and the armed forces of Ukraine can consolidate into these offensive pushes. That's my hypothesis that we're not going to see these guys directly getting into, you know, you know, intentional assaults on frontline combat. Although there are several volunteer battalions that are in frontline combat now, especially in the East. And there are some TDF units as well. But if this starts to transition more into a war simply in the Donbass or whatnot, and the Ukraine say, okay, step one, stop the offensive in Izium. Step two, free up Kharkiv. Step three, hold the line there. And then step four, we take, they go back into Kherson and so on and so forth. Then having these TDF units to backfill areas where the conventional military is will make life a lot easier because now they say, oh, we don't have to all hang out in Kharkiv now. We can drop 5,000 territorial defense forces in there and we can go out and we can start chasing these Russians down. So it's a matter of where they can reinforce and resupply less so than where they're going to be on the front lines. Cause you're right. It would take months and months and months and months 
to get these guys equipped for, you know, assaults and frontline combats and whatnot. Though there are some volunteer assault companies, but if you're, you know, a cook, a chef in Kiev, and I gave you a rifle, and even if you're as motivated as possible, two months of training, maybe you can stand up against DPR, LPR forces in an assault. But the second you go up against, you know, Spetsnaz groups or VDV that have actual will to fight, you're going to get slaughtered. So it's not worthwhile. But if I say, hey, we're going to put you in this city and you're, now your job is to control the checkpoints, which is what they've mostly been doing already, and do patrols and basic stuff like that. And there's just so much of you that you can flood the space and we really don't have to worry about it. Then all the National Guard and conventional army, they can go somewhere else. So if you right now there's like 10 to 12 battalions in Odessa. If you're able to move five of those out from that city and another five from Mykolaiv and another five from Kharkiv, okay, cool. Now you've got another you know, 15,000, 20,000 regular conventional trained soldiers who can go and do work. Does that kind of answer the question? Yes. And um, I believe Nolan Peterson put out an article uh, about a week ago. And it's uh, in the article, he indicated that it appears that before this formal authorization was granted, that as of about two or so weeks ago, um, they had already begun to deploy TDF units to Donbass as uh, for use as a military reserve um, for just the regular army forces there. That's entirely possible. I haven't been tracking that, to be quite honest with you. So I can't really comment more on it. I will I say the, again. Uh, I can put the link in the nest if you like. That would be fantastic if you don't mind. Um, but yeah, my, my working hypothesis is that you're not going to take TDF soldiers and integrate them directly into a long-standing military unit. Um, it is sort of like a, a supply chain of troops there, if that makes sense. I mean, maybe you can use them in logistics capabilities and whatnot, because it takes a lot longer to train a guy to be an assault man in any capacity that doesn't die in his first battle compared to a guy that drives trucks and handles things or helps out with an artillery team. But if I've got a group like the folks that are in Rubizna or Papazna who have been fighting in pitched urban warfare, and I take, you know, some young kid off the street with a rifle who's spent two months shooting at ranges, then there's going to be some brushing up against people and people are going to get a little aggravated because they go, hey, you know, I've watched my buddy here fight along my side for two months and get killed by a sniper. And now I have to deal with this idiot. So I don't see them going directly to the front line, but I can see them being used in other capacities if they are already there. But the more information about that, I can get the better, frankly, because uh, I'm, I'm not as knowledgeable about it as you are, perhaps. But thank you very much for bringing that up. Um, I see we have a couple more folks here. Uh, let's go to Democracy Now! And then um, Doc Chorizo. And then we have uh, Patrick Fox back in. It's always a pleasure to have you here, sir. And uh, as many others as we can get up. This is Democracy Watch News. Uh, Amy Goodman. Yeah, I apologize. You mentioned. That's okay. That's okay. I uh, let her cover all of the some of the detailed reports, and we try to be more comprehensive. It takes a lot of pressure off everybody, which is what I like to do. One thing that I can draw back on my, the first year or so that I was at National Semiconductor, my entry level was as a contractor in security. So a lot of the routine uh, um, rounds that we did, uh, um, that I did, uh, sitting on monitors, watching monitors and everything. There's a lot of, of things that need to be done to keep a, a large facility safe. And as I mentioned before, there were 10,000 people at the main campus. 
So it was a large international uh, facility. It had production, it had research, it had uh, headquarters, it had all kinds of different functions going on. And, but one of the things that I noticed is that it takes some serious attentive monitoring and a lot of responsible initiative to pay attention uh, when you're on the monitors or when you're doing a security run. If you miss those things, you can have fires and all kinds of, of, of mishaps that can happen. And if people are not attentive on the job, that it can be a real problem. Uh, it would fit in as one of the things that should be under consideration when we're trying to figure out what the hell happened with some of these fires. Because it's possible, very possible, based on my experience, some of these could be because somebody got a little sloppy. They didn't check... Uh, some of the equipment that the batteries were changed, that they need batteries. They didn't check to make sure that things like fire extinguishers were up to date on being recharged. There's all kinds of little details. And there's always the, the famous transformer fires, which I saw numbers of those happen. And I was there when one started once and called it in immediately. And, you know, which was easy because I usually the one that wrote the incident reports and such things. So having been there at the beginning, it was one of my better reports. But anyway, I just wanted to pass that along. That's one more question to ask when we're trying to analyze what, what what's the checklist, what are the range of possibilities, what do we need to discount or keep on the list, check. Absolutely. Um, it's important to take a look at that as I think there, there's a term for this. And it's been, <laughs> it's been shared with me a few times and I cannot keep it in my head where when you are paying exclusive attention to something, things that may have once always been occurring in the background sort of get elevated. Um, when we talk about these arsons and burnings and destruction of military equipment in Russia by what is widely assumed at this point to either be sort of a, hybrid uh, partisan, you know, resistance force. Some of these are probably just accidents. Not saying all of them are. I think at this point, the number wildly outstrips anything that would just be explained by accidents, even with degrading Russian infrastructure and what have you. But some of this just... If you you allow me for a second, it just occurred to me, which also perhaps even begs the question, perhaps, uh, if if you don't like what's going on, if you feel a bit frustrated with the corruption, or maybe you know a little bit about the war because you're younger and your friends are getting using VPNs and talking to you about it and stuff, but if you, if you don't like what's going on, wouldn't it be easy to look the other way and so that things go unnoticed? And then you have the accident occurred. There's nobody to pin it on. I have to mention that as a possibility also. Sorry for interrupting, but it occurred to me that was important to say as a possibility. It it makes sense. There's ways to degrade a system without literally throwing a wrench in the works, Um, especially if you've been working on it for a long period of time. I also think there's some times where it's just exhaustion mixed with incompetence, mixed with a stressful situation. The first ammo dump fire slash explosion we saw in Belgorod, the Ukrainians never took responsibility for that. They were pretty big. And then later on, when the helicopters hit, they did this sort of tongue-in-cheek, oh, we're not sure if it was us. Yeah, it was us, guys. Uh, but we never saw anything for the first one, and people were all kind of confused about it. And it seemed more likely to just 
some guy had a bad night and he dropped something he shouldn't have and it blew up. Um, and that's going to be a part of it just when people are degraded enough by months and months of war, of exhaustion, of stress. I can't pay for my stuff anymore. My debit card doesn't work. My girlfriend left the country because she had a permit. She's somewhere in France. I don't know what the future's like. I'm drinking more. I'm tired. I'm hungry. I'm exhausted. And was I supposed to do that? Did I lock out and tag out that machine? Yeah, I'm sure I did. Whatever. I don't give a shit about this job. I'm going home. And the next thing you know, stuff breaks and is on fire. Um, so like, there's it, when systems fail, it tends to be more commonly a combination of many small factors occurring at once than just one big factor. Though we've also seen like dedicated, verifiable arson attacks in Russia against recruiting offices. In one case, what's believed to be the forest fires in Krasnodar um, appear to have been started by uh, somebody intentionally, things like that. But I just want to kind of caution people that there's a number of reasons why we can see this degradation of Russian infrastructure and not all of them come from malice. They're just downstream effects of people who have been sent to war and they were reservists and they were conscripts and now nobody's manning this and the new guy doesn't know what the hell he's doing. And so he breaks things and the system was already broken before he got there. And now it's just the final piece. Um, yeah. So ho hopefully that kind of touches on your question there, sir. Um, and I really do appreciate what you're saying regarding it can be exhausting work doing these things, especially monitoring systems. And at some point, if you have somebody who's not at their fullest or doesn't have the motivation to do so, then you're going to run into issues. Um, let's go to Doc Chorizo. And then after that, to uh, Paul DeSantis. Hi, everyone. Peace and blessings. Uh, I had a question about how to be able to kind of... Uh, I wouldn't want to phrase it this way, but kind of exploit the ethnic tensions within Russia, if there is any. I know earlier you spoke on the Tuvan being forced, you know, to be in the front lines. And, um, you know, obviously the Chechens doing their TikTok videos seem a little bit more motivated to be out there. But, uh, you know, for the everyday people that are suffering and have suffered for, you know, centuries under um, the Russian uh, empire, how... Can there be a, um, how would I say, social media campaign um, to be able to kind of um, show the people there, you know, what's going on to not just their, you know, their sons, but what's happening with the Ukrainian people and what they're supporting? Or um, is it they're so solidified with their loyalty to the Russian government because they don't want to be controlled by uh, the Chinese government? I'm not too sure if someone can speak on that. Sure. So... This is going to be a bit more of a longer topic. Um, we're talking about ethnic tensions within Russia. The, long, the sh very short answer is it's going to be incredibly difficult to motivate these people to, you know, start trying to form kind of like autonomous regions or fight back against the Russian government. It's not just because that they're, you know, they're big fans of Putin, but the circumstances in which they live and they've been subjected to. A lot of different ethnic groups in Russia, the main dominating one tends to be what we would consider ethnic Russians. And then there's also sociopolitical or economic aspects to that. If you're if you're a rich white Russian, you're living in Moscow, you're going to have a lot more opportunities when the draft bus rolls around than some, you know, guy from Yakutia all the way out in the east. And the amount of casualties we've seen in this war so far on the Russian side, the minorities have been grossly overrepresented. 
Uh, like there are places where there are regions where they are 25% of the population, but 80% of the casualties that are coming back there are from this ethnic group. Now, a lot of reasons is they kind of get press ganged into uh, not just conscription, they can't dodge it as easily as somebody with political connections or money in Moscow who can hire a lawyer. But when the conscription runs out, they may not, you know, speak Russian as well. Uh, they basically get told, no, you have to do this. You have to sign up for the military. And if you don't, bad stuff will happen to you. And they don't know any better, so they do. Um, and then because of race and discrimination, a lot, I mean, there's some, you know, Yakut guys way out from the East, more of an Asiatic people who end up essentially being used as pack mules and just abused, um, you know, mocked and whatnot. Um, beyond that, there's a lot of, once you get outside of, you know, the Western section of Russia, Moscow, St. Petersburg, et cetera, there are a lot of places in Russia that are desperately poor. We're talking desperate levels of impoverishment. And when you live in an area like that, um, anything is better than that. Uh, just because you, you start to lose hope and <sighs> I'm going to speak on a, a little bit, some, you know, maybe some of our American listeners can talk about. If you ever spent time um, on a native reservation that's been subjected to tremendous issues, um, including alcoholism, the commonality there is the belief among at least the people who are the most downtrodden that things do not have the capability to get better. And it's going to sound like some movie quote, but when you lose the cape, when you lose hope and you just say this situation won't improve itself you're not going to motivate yourself to suddenly rise against your oppressor or do anything. You're going to find a way to anesthetize yourself and just try and go about your day without dying or, you, or, you know, depression, suicide, substance abuse, which we see a lot of in these more impoverished areas of Russia. And if you're in that situation, even if you start getting media from someone outside the country, and it's going to be harder and harder to do that these days, that's telling you, look at these horrible things going on in Ukraine. It's terrible. It's terrible. You're going to go, well, I don't really care. My roof's been leaking. My, uh, you know, wife left me with the kids and, uh, you know, my brother drank himself to death and then shot himself in the face yesterday. And I am, you know, just trying to get by and I can't care about it. So it, it's not the most positive answer, but you're not going to have a tremendous amount of benefit going to try and push these uh, ethnic groups into some kind of conflict, especially because if there is any kind of not even an uprising, but even just protests we've seen, they get suppressed pretty brutally, um, especially in Siberia, where the Russian government both gives people a bit more of a longer leash because they don't care about them, but because they don't care about them, when the hammer comes down, it comes down very hard. I mean, you've seen even what you would consider, you know, the quote unquote middle class of Russia in Moscow just being arrested like that and, you know, given very hefty sentences and fines for essentially no infractions whatsoever, just saying, hey, I don't think this war is a great idea. And if you're from some ethnic village where you're already being discriminated against and you decide, you know what, I'm going to do what's right and I'm going to burn down the local military office and they catch you, it's probably not just going to be you who suffers. There's going to be a lot of people you know. And people are aware of this because they've been repressed in these regions for generations at a time. Um, there are some outliers, places in uh, South Ossetia, places in Chechnya, but we are not anywhere close to the point where a uh, insurrection that took off from there would be able to gain significant traction before it was brutally, brutally shut down. It's a very long answer. Um, I apologize. No, I, I definitely, no, I definitely appreciate, appreciate that insight. And I would, I would just have a quick follow-on question with that in the same kind of category. 
would you apply that as well towards the other um, um, the collective uh, defense states like Kazakhstan, Kyrgyzstan, Uzbekistan, um, if Putin decides to uh, formally declare war on Ukraine, would those states be pulled in and how would that change the, the dynamic of the war? You'll see a lot of draft dodging. Um, it's actually kind of funny and I try and not make this, you know, cause I understand there's politics and everything these days. Um, going back to COVID, uh, Russia came out with their Sputnik five vaccine, which I believe is now an eight course vaccine that essentially does nothing. Um, aggravated a lot of people in Russia and because of some media narratives that um, Russia was creating in other areas of the world, there was a lot of tremendous suspicion towards this, as well as the fact that it's, you know, if, if it's, you know, placebo effect at best, right? And Russians got very, very good very quickly at being able to dodge these things. I mean, that's a relic from the Soviet times. You keep your head down, it doesn't get cut off when the blade comes around, right? And... That's why when we've seen arson attacks on recruiting outposts, for instance, they're burning the records of they're not just burning the outside and saying, you know, to hell with you guys. They're, they're starting the fires where the paper records are, where the computers are. So that way they can just disappear. and They can't get called up. And we've seen tremendous amounts of this already. You know, people saying, oh, well, oh, Yevgeny, he was in this village. I know you're looking for him. I think he went over to this village. Where is he in that village? Oh, I don't know. He forgot to register when he got there. That's a shame. You know what? If we see him, we'll let him know you stop by. Stuff like that. That will just happen on a larger scale, both A, if mobilization does occur in Russia to a degree, because people are going to go, hey, man, I don't want anything of this. I've seen where it went. The mosque has sunk. You know, I've watched three of my buddies come back in coffins. I don't want anything of that. Um, here, I'm going to pay you $20 to leave me alone, right? You'll see a lot of noncompliance. And in these other CSTO, CSTO countries, um, collective security tree organizations sort of a very, very, very loose analog to the Warsaw Pact. Um, you're you're going to see a lot of resentment. I mean, Kazakhstan refused to um, send forces, I believe, earlier on, even though their government essentially got saved by uh, Putin's forces just last year. Even Belarus, and Belarus is as close to the you know 51st state of Russia or whatever as you're going to get to the point that if you take a flight from Moscow to Belarus – it doesn't count as an international flight. They treat it as a domestic flight. should tell you everything you need to know about the relationship between the countries. Even the Belarusian soldiers, professional military, this is their job. They were saying, hey, buddy, we're not going in and we're right here and we don't have to get on planes and we don't have to worry. About it. We are staring at the border. It's 20 feet away and we will absolutely not go. And they ended up having to reshuffle a bunch of their military and they still wouldn't go in. So in Belarus, who is as close to Russia as you can get, both physically and, you know, politically at this point, is saying, hell no, we won't go. I don't see Kazakhstan or Uzbekistan or Tajikistan or any of these other places having any desire whatsoever. They'll find a reason. They'll find an excuse. And what's Russia going to do? Compel them? Russia's going to, what, withhold aid? Okay, what aid? Russia's going to send their military there to round people up? What military? They're all in Ukraine or guarding borders. So I, I don't see them getting drawn in in any major way. And if there is some mass mobilization, I think you're going to see a tremendous amount of people who don't want to comply with it. And you're going to see a lot of issues descend from that as well. Thank you so much. All right. Let's go to uh, Paul DeSantis. Thank you for being so patient. And then to Colby and then to Democracy. 
Hey, language. Thanks so much. And uh, thanks for all the great updates. Uh, this room kind of provides like everything CNN should be uh, for those of us who are looking for updates on the, on the war. So thanks so much for this. Um, so I'm just going to navigate to my map real quick for a second. Um, so, you know, it's interesting looking at Kharkiv, that push from the East from Kharkiv by Ukraine is looking really good as it heads towards Kupiansk, which we discussed, I think one or two nights ago, uh, which is like kind of a key bottleneck of uh, supply lines for the Russians and, you know, my question, one, are we close to artillery range to disrupt those supply lines? And two, if you head on south towards Izium, this has always been a puzzling question to me. On the, And I'm referencing the Institute for Study of War Maps, which is associated with General Petraeus. So that's kind of why I follow it, because I, I've always kind of followed him in a, a, a lot of different ways. But if you look at Izium, what is the strategic rationale for the Russians to be sprawling out westward from Izium, way out westward, which I, I just don't see any strategic objectives that's within like within their uh, within the range of their supply lines for them to be heading out westward from there. And I know this might be a little confusing for those listening uh, without looking at the maps, but can you comment on that? I mean, are we within supply uh, the artillery range to hit uh, Kupiansk? And then what's the point of this Izium? Uh, front uh, kind of like heading out westward and then third actually just is just more of a comment I'm starting to see that salient that you're talking about that you've been talking about I think for like a week or two potentially uh, up in this northern part of a uh, northeastern part of Ukraine between uh, kind of the Kharkiv region and I guess Liman and, and my question is that you know any potential for encirclement would really be contingent upon like uh, some forces in Liman pushing westward towards Chuhiv. So sorry if I'm confusing everybody, but those are kind of like the big battle strategy questions I've had. And and I, I'll just like kind of close briefly by saying, this is exactly what I would have like hoped would occur as far as the what's going on in Kharkiv, pushing eastward, you know, heading towards these supply lines in the northern, northeastern part uh, above Izium. So yeah, thanks. Thank you. Um, as far as Lehman, because you're saying pushing west from Lehman, that seems to be what they're doing now. Um, I don't think that they get all the way up to Chuhi. That's a very long walk, and there's a tremendous amount of Ukrainian forces um, there. The reason that Russian forces appear to have been pushed west from Izium, or they've been pushing west from Izium, is it's just this constant sort of, well, this isn't working, so let's try the next best thing. Well, that's not working, so let's try the next best thing. It appears the original goal was to strike down from Izium to the cities of Sloviansk and Kramatorsk. That's been dramatically unsuccessful. They went, okay, well, they're on a major supply route. Let's go to Barvenkov. Instead of a quarter million people that used to live there, there's only 8,000. And it's mostly grasslands, and we have a height advantage until we get into town. So we'll run through a bunch of small towns. And so they did. Ukraine's pulled back until they got around Nova Dmitrika, Vernopila, close to Barvenkov, and they've run into the same issue. And they've just been stimmied there. They haven't been effective. And they go, okay, well, the, trying to hit the supply lines for Sloviansk hasn't worked. Let's try and hit the supply lines to Barvenkov. Maybe if we go a little further to the west, not only can we block Ukrainian reinforcements, but then we can sweep down, you know, surround and degrade Barvenkov. And from there, we'll be able to pinch or Sloviansk or something. It's this... It does not appear like that was their original goal based on where their units moved 
um, a couple of weeks ago when they first pushed out of Izium, it was really very dedicated towards Slovyansk. And beyond that, when they got stopped, they go, okay, this isn't working. Let's try and come from the side. Oh, that's not working. Let's come even further from the side. And now that that's not working, they're kind of out of options. They are. They do have some more pushes up north of Izium. Um, it looks like they're trying to head west as the Ukrainians punch in towards their supply line. So it'll be interesting to see where that goes. There's a motorized brigade that built a pontoon bridge yesterday as the Ukrainians have gotten very much within artillery range of the MO3 highway, which is one of the main north-south highways leading to Izium. Admittedly, not being used that much for supplies by Russians, but after this, much less. Um, as far as them, like somehow getting an encirclement out near Chuviv, I just don't see it at this point. There's a tremendous amount of Ukrainian forces there. Uh, I, I don't see Russian forces being able to carry out that many offensives in that many directions at this time and being successful. And while there was an area near this town of, uh, Trevonyoskil, which is due east of Izium, where Ukraine forces had pushed up, got within range of menacing the other major supply line to Izium and Russian forces freaked out started to encircle them, the Ukrainians pulled back. The Ukrainians are not stupid. They have tremendous access of intelligence. They go, hey, we're looking like we might get our supply lines cut off for no reasonable gain. Let's live to fight another day and pull back to a better defensive line. And they've done that a couple times. And if they start to get into a bad position, I'm sure they'll do it again. So I don't really see an encirclement the way that you were discussing it being viable at this point, barring some real massive crazy stuff from the Russian side or some real you know, massive losses, foolishness from the Ukrainian side. And neither of those I see as being particularly likely. Uh, real quick, here's a follow-up. Um, so if you're, you know, Russian forces in Izium and you're seeing this push north of you in Izium, okay, so essentially the the Ukrainian forces in Chihuiv, um, and you're seeing the encroachment of your, your battle lines essentially – eastward um and, and north of you how does that dilute your efforts to keep pushing south from Izium? i mean if at some point you have to start being concerned that your supply lines are going to get cut off at kupiansk potentially and you would need to send forces back up to kind of reinforce those lines up to the northwest of Izium. does that make sense yes it's actually a very good question i wish we had craig here because he's He's called it um, the same way that you are a number of times. I believe you're both accurate in that Ukraine is not just throwing all of its forces to fight all of the Russian forces that are pushing south. And then it's just whoever you know gets the fight wins, right? They're saying, no, if we attack from the north, even if we're not cutting off your supply routes or getting all the way to Kupiansk, which frankly, there's still quite a distance from. If we just have the threat that we could hit you or your supply lines, you're going to have to take guys and you're going to have to send them up to defend against us. Because if you don't, then we'll cut you off. But if you do send those guys north to defend, then every single man that goes north to sit around in the field to make sure that they don't get encircled is another person who can't participate in the attack towards the south where Ukrainian forces are trying to hold the line, right? So it's a good way to divide the Russian forces. And I think Craig's perspective is that, especially one of the most um, larger resupplies or something like 500 vehicles of various types, um, APCs, tanks, uh, regular trucks that showed up in Izium in that vicinity. It wasn't so that suddenly, okay, everybody get in the line, we're headed south. It was so a bunch of them could go, hey, your job is to stay here and make sure we don't get encircled or have our supply lines threatened like we did northwest of Kiev. We can't let that happen again because if this collapses that way, it would be stupid and we'd be embarrassed. 
So your job is to hold this while the assault forces push down. Um, and the Ukrainians have done a masterful job. Chuhiv is still a decent distance away. Frankly, it's not nearly close enough to threaten uh, the major supply line yet at this point. Um, it looks like that whole purpose there is really just to push the Russians back to the border and uh, from there hopefully start going towards Kupiansk. But that is a that is a ways away, unfortunately. it's uh, They're not going to be able to get there anytime in the near future. Um, it, there's, you know, I want to say like at least a couple hundred kilometers they'd have to take and hold. But the more that they do up there, the more work that they supply, the more nervous Russians get, the more they have to adjust their supply convoys, and the more people they have to set up to defend their back lines, which are people who are not actively engaged in the assault, if that makes sense. It, it does. And just one last quick follow-up. Are you as surprised as I am that like the Luhansk and Donetsk fronts, which were like the preoccupied regions during the war, really those lines haven't changed much? To me, I would have thought those lines would have been kind of smashed early on by the Russians. I would have thought just because of overwhelming power with a the what 90 battalion tactical groups or whatever the number was committed at the time of the start of the war those lines have remained stable is there a reason for that there's just more defenses there frankly the troops that were there beforehand were ready for this they had entrenched defenses they were prepared for an attack from these directions and they've been really good at stopping it also a lot of uh, these mobilized force mobilized constructs from the donbass have been used along those lines of attack, and they've just been getting slaughtered. Um, they haven't really accomplished much. Um, I, I think in a different world where Putin said, my goal is just to capture the Donbass, and he took his all of these battalion tactical groups and just lined them up in the Donbass and went across, yeah, we would have seen a very different circumstance, but he didn't do that. And as a result, there's been a number of forces there that have essentially just been firing artillery onto Ukrainian lines for two months now. And beyond that, you know, sort of limited attacks. But the, like you said, there's been very minimal territorial gain from the east to the west toward in uh, the Donbass area, what was called the JFO, the Joint Force Operations Area, mostly because the Ukraine forces there are well-equipped, well-trained, have good defenses, and they're, you know, they know what to do. It's why Izium, which was not expected or did not have the same level of defenses that have been brought up over the last eight years, to defend against a northern attack was actually a place where we saw Russian forces push through um, because, you know, you don't have eight years of defenses and entrenchments and zeroed artillery coordinates and all that jazz. So if, if they're all very good questions, we, we have had a couple people with their hands up. If that's all right, hopefully I was able to answer it. Um, but let's go to Colby, who's been very patient, then to democracy and then to Beth Hill. Thanks. I would just uh, add to that that obviously the main effort was Kiev and not the Donbass. Russia never, uh, you know, committed sufficient forces to achieve a breakthrough um, in that area until now. They hadn't tried. Um, you know, we saw them were just fixing fixing actions to try and distract attention, um, but they had most of their most capable units obviously dedicated in the effort towards Kiev. So. Uh, that in combination of what ev everything language said um, is why there wasn't a, a breakthrough in the Donbass until now. Um, I, I also I came up. I just wanted to add to language's answer about the uh, the CSTO. You're not going to see any of those countries send soldiers to fight in Ukraine for Russia. Um, 
all of the, you know, particularly the Central Asian countries and, and Belarus as well, which was thought to be, you know, very much closely aligned with Russia. These countries have tremendous domestic political issues and they cannot afford to um, send soldiers because that A, weakens the position of the regime and the ability to suppress protests and B, there will be, in fact, be protests in the streets if uh, those countries send soldiers to fight in what is a uh, very unpopular war um in in most people's eyes it would seem um you know there's certainly pro-russian sentiment but uh i don't think that the average person in uh, in kazakhstan is interested um in having uh kazakhs go fight for for russia and ukraine um so it's that explains why we haven't seen it and i don't think we will see it uh and and, and the proof in that is as well is uh russia still maintains garrisons in these countries we're not seeing those garrisons in Central Asia leave because Russia has very significant, um, you know, interests in the region, uh, and they need to maintain the presence there because they uh, they are concerned that they could have a repeat of what happened in Kazakhstan prior to the war. Very well put. Um, Colby is a bit more, uh, when I say big, I mean severely um, more informed on sort of the political situation in those countries. And uh, we could probably de- dovetail into, you know, what's Kazakhstan looking like? What's the other places looking like now? But he's making an incredibly good point that it would be foolish for them to try and send forces to an unpopular war while they've got troubles at home. And they'll have protests, especially if given the track record of what Russia does with their allies' forces, suddenly a bunch of kids start coming back home in boxes. That tends to make people a little aggravated. Uh, hopefully... Uh, that clarified that question a bit. Let's go to Democracy Watch News and then to Beth Hill. Yeah, to aid this, I just posted the uh, Regions of Russia article that I find is good listing. I'm really curious, and I, I, I don't necessarily suggest that this there be a quick response now, but Russia, the uh, the Russian Federation is composed of 85, counting Sebastopol and Republic of Crimea, um, there are 85 uh, uh, federal subjects or entities, top-level political divisions. Um, I'm wondering if if we're, we're treating these all as essentially the same, and and it might be something to take into consideration for people who keep track of such things it would be great to occasionally hear back on on a few of these uh, regions uh, regions or oblasts and or other such autonomous oblasts and things if if we could hear a little commentary on them because there might be some different perspectives and 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 political realities in in those particular other parts of, of the Russian Federation. It just might be an interesting thing to uh, hear from occasionally. Yes. Um, certainly. I mean, that's extremely expansive, obviously. Uh, as you said, there's 85, um, and I believe it's 22 of those are uh, sort of semi-autonomous republics, which are primarily based on a specific ethnic group. So those are more of the hotspots to watch. Um, but, you know, that's that's very expansive and they're all 
Um, you know, they all have differences. Um, you know, some have similarities. Sort of, uh, there's some common themes when you look at um, sort of uh, Tartarstan and the other ones around Tartarstan are a little bit. They're sort of similar. Uh, the Caucasus and Caucasian ones, uh, you know, have similarities. Dagestan and, and Chechnya. Um, but uh, w- one of the issues is that it's very difficult to get re- sort of reliable, um, you know, polling data out of Russia. Uh, certainly, you know, if you're looking for, uh, you know, polls of a specific uh, uh, republic, that's going to be even more challenging um, to get an accurate sense of, you know, what the average person thinks um, in those places. Uh, a lot of them are very remote and insular. Um, so if there is specific areas of interest, certainly uh, we have uh, some opportunities to try and get some experts on specific ones into the space to discuss um, to discuss things. Um, but suffice to say, um, Camille Believe is a very good resource on this topic because he's discussed at length in numerous threads sort of the demographics of Russia and, uh, you know, uh, the factors at play there with all these different um, ethnic groups in the country. And the extent to which uh, many of them are kind of filling up the bulk of the uh, the Russian army and certainly uh, disproportionately um, suffer casualties on the front line. Um, so yeah, it's, it's something we can certainly look at and uh, it's helpful if people have specific questions they want to address because uh, that's a very, very expansive topic. Uh, Beth, go ahead, please. Yeah. Good evening, where it is uh, evening where I live. Language, I want to tell you what a good job you do at facilitating and hosting. I appreciate the work you put in, and you manage a lot of personalities and a lot of questions, and you do it well. I am short on time, but I want to make three points. Um, One... A a very important metric when looking at any type of democracy or movement or efficacy is the ability to change things. When the people living in a particular country feel they have an ability to change things, whether through the elected official, whether through, uh, you know, voting mechanisms, that is one of the key metrics. And I'm mentioning that. Uh, back to the conversation uh, a little bit ago and um, language brought up a parallel to how Native Americans who live on reservations feel hopeless. So anybody can evaluate uh, the efficacy of a democracy with that metric. Second point, uh, as part of my business, I've been monitoring um, disinformation spaces and rooms, whatnot. And as might be expected, the Walter Report is starting to come up quite regularly. Uh, the, the work and information that is shared on this space has uh, attracted attention. And whereas um, it, it's very difficult for me to get into this because it's late and I need to keep this short, I'll just say that there's a tremendous effort being undertaken to mischaracterize what is being said here. The purpose of this uh, space 
And the misinformation that was shared was um, as might be expected, as might be expected. So this, this space is attracting a lot of attention and the narrative is exactly what you would expect. Thank you. And the last point is, and it's primarily attentive to Democracy Now! speaker. Uh, it, it was your, your uh, comments that really prodded me to request a little bit of time. I, I know that you mentioned that you work for Democracy Now!, you know, it's, it's Amy Goodman's program. And in the United States, there is a large uh, viewership that considers this program to be uh, maybe more reliable than mainstream media or whatnot. But she has repeatedly have, have, has had guests, so-called experts, who are following the narrative that the United States is perpetuating this war by providing weapons and that uh, these experts... So it's a good point you're making. But just for the sake of all of us here, uh, maybe this is a conversation better had one-on-one so you can get into some of the specific details. Um, I really don't know if it necessarily benefits us, especially with the international audience that's on at this time of night, to kind of get into specific media personalities. Not trying to shut you down, but I I hope you understand where I'm coming from here. I do. I'll just follow up very briefly and to say that it is not helpful when a, a major outlet uh, follows a narrative that does not provide the counter-narrative that um, you know, so-called peace talks are, are not possible. It's an untenable uh, offering. Ukrainians would be slaughtered. There, there is no, no uh, rational way to approach this at this time. And um, I I just wanted to make that point. It's late. I've had a very long day. Thank you all for the work you do on this space. It is appreciated. Uh, Thank you for your time. Thank you. And yeah, I guess uh, maybe a separate conversation with Democracy Watch News about, you know, some, you know, housekeeping stuff. But that's not what necessarily all of us are here for. And I appreciate you guys. uh, yeah. Thank you. Um, let's go to Dominic Mooney. We also have Patrick Fox up here. Um, I always love to have your perspective, sir. Um, if there's anything we may have missed or anything we may have mischaracterized um, or any topics that are, you know, germane, really. Um, but let's go to Dominic first. And then, um, Patrick, if you have anything you'd like to add. Otherwise, I see we have Astro Chick who also came up. And we'll try and run through our speakers as quickly as we can. Hi there. I uh, just... Um make you aware of a couple of tidbits. Um, there's, I don't know if you've seen the post by Anders Osland. Um, he's been having a look at a Telegram t- channel, General SVR, um, which is basically kind of confirming that the um, the suicides that we've been seeing of various Gazprom executives uh, are, you know, signed off by Putin, basically. And another little one um, from Viktor Kovalenko, which kind of, uh, <laughs> it looks like, I mean, there's some really seriously ancient hardware has fallen, it's fallen down over Mikolaev 
um, and he's positing that it's probably 60s or 70s. Uh, it's an SPRD251, apparently. Um, so kind of answers the question as to how low they get in stocks on missiles or some kind of thing. Um, and I don't know, uh, uh, on this site, have you ever talked about the FSB letters at all? I talk about them a bit. I think they're a very useful tool. I occasionally have my doubts and concerns about specific ones. Um, I actually spent some time in the gentleman's space who is doing the translating, not the one who's receiving it. And mm -hmm. I believe that the source that he's getting it from, it, he certainly believes it to be credible. And it seems that there's some serious vetting going on in the background and it reads like an analyst letters. However, some of the allegations have just been so wild and off the wall that while they could be true, um, extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence. And when we're seeing letters saying that, oh, there's going to be apartment bombings in Moscow on this date and it's going to happen yeah. and it's going to turn into this. And then that just doesn't happen. Then, you know, my spidey senses tingle a bit. I go, OK, you know, you might have been right on stuff at the beginning and the, some things make a lot more sense. But these long, extreme claims like, you know, Transnistria was supposed to be on fire right now and all kinds of stuff. It, it's difficult for me to justify um, yeah, I, I think it's a great resource. Uh, Igor Shusko is, I believe, um, the gentleman who's really pulling those. And then there's uh, another gentleman who's actually a Formula One driver who's been doing a lot of translations of them. And it's good because there are idioms and specifics that can get lost if you use an automatic translator. But just with a grain of salt, um, especially some of the more recent ones, they seem a little more hysterical than perhaps I would uh, – I would believe, and I could be wrong on this. I might be letting my own opinions influence me, but just extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence. It's a good thing whenever you're looking at media regarding this war. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm kind of a, of a similar mind, really, that, um, yeah, he seems to be a little bit of a drama queen, doesn't he, really? And like you say, some of his dates haven't quite worked out. But some of them, um, some of the false flags have kind of vaguely been, you know, Right, but they've been kind of taken over by events, haven't they, really? I mean, you know, when when the, you know, when, when oil terminals blow up, um, then there's not that much point doing a false flag, is there, really? But I just thought I'd leave that, that, you know, that this is the most strange one, this, this kind of potentially 60s or 70s missile turning up in Mikhailov. I think it's just a booster section, and he doesn't really know what system it belonged to um well he's got this he's positing two possibilities and one of them's anti-air so i don't know how that would work um but anyway yeah i'll uh i'll leave it now anyway thanks a lot thank you yeah if you want to send me the link because i hadn't read anything on the booster segment though we do know russia has been using very antiquated explosives to the point that um and i believe you know patrick probably knows a little bit more about this than i do because of his background with the air force um, and being around, you know, some of these things. It was uh, something they mounted on one of their bombers that they were using to pound Dazovstal into dust. I think it's called an FAB-3000. It's like a 3,000-kilogram uh, yeah, bomb. And there was a picture purportedly, um, and it showed a Tu-22 in the background, and it showed this bomb. And it's just what you would think of as, a, you know, a bomb. It goes on a plane, you drop it, it explodes. And this thing was, like, pitted with rust on the outside. 
So, you know, it, it, I wouldn't doubt that they're using antiquated uh, weaponry at this point, um, especially because reports show they've sent over about 2,100 missiles into Ukraine at this point, and they were originally anticipating to use somewhere close to 300 for their shock and awe campaign. So they're turning to increasingly uh, antiquated and less um, less modern systems. But, wow. So I'll just step back a little bit because um, I believe it requires clarification. Um, regarding something that was said by the previous speaker and about the peace talks. Uh, maybe it was me misunderstanding, maybe not. Anyhow, um, yes, there are suggested peace talks, again, coming from Moscow, but we will understand where this is coming or getting to, if it's coming from Moscow. If the front line gets solidified as it is right now if these russian occupied territories with ukrainians on russian occupied territories remain as russian occupied territories after these quote-unquote peace talks we know what will happen to these ukrainians and as previous speaker said yes they will be slaughtered if they remain on Russian occupied territories. Simple as that. Because Russians perpetrate genocide and they are literally slaughtering, deporting, raping, killing Ukrainians who are on Russian occupied Ukrainian territories. So the, the only way out towards peace talks and the first step to the peace talks the removal of Russian invaders from Russian-occupied Ukrainian territories. Then we can proceed to peace talks. All right, and uh, regarding this rocket booster, just to clarify a bit, I might throw it up in the nest. Um, if I can find a tweet for it from Tactical Ocean. Thank you for sending it to me. It looks like a rocket boost that would apply to a TU-143, which is a mid-1970s cruise missile, and frankly, it looks like a mid-1970s cruise missile. I can see that being accurate. I mean, we've seen evidence of very antiquated uh, weaponry being utilized increasingly, um, sometimes because it makes sense. I mean, if you have total air supremacy over Azov style, doesn't really matter if it's a super hyper-guided missile or if it's just a dumb bomb because the guys in the basement can't shoot at you anyway. Uh but I think it just further demonstrates the degradation of Russian military assets to the point where they have to rely on these older systems, which, you know, it would be, it would be foolish for them to be using these if they still had access to their, you know, larger stockpiles that they claim to have of long range, you know, very accurate missiles. So just as a general point there. And thank you for saying that to me. Uh, Paul, the, oops, sorry, go ahead, Dominic. Um, no, yeah, yeah. Um, so is this kind of in line with the kind of antique ant artillery that we're sending in as well? Because a lot of those look like kind of World War II stuff to me. I mean, artillery do doesn't change that much until you get into more modern uh, NATO systems. And what they're using, I believe it's the D-30. They also have some self-propelled guns, which I am not nearly as familiar with. I think Colby can actually speak on those better than I can. But you know, artillery, when it boils down to it, and the Russian military has been focused around artillery for a long period of time, the general premise was 
their troops advance up to a line. Um, they then utilize artillery and they kill everything beyond that line and they advance again when they start to run into trouble. And that's part of the reason why battalion tactic groups is one very small part because then they could distribute artillery to everybody. And I think the D30 is from like the 60s, 60s or 70s. And it's a pretty simple design. It's a big gun, shoots a big bullet. It goes a decent distance and then it explodes, um, causing some damage. Well, there's some interesting things there in that they've been almost exclusively using, from what I've seen, ground uh, explosion shells. That's not the proper term. It's late. I apologize. As opposed to airburst shells. Now, the difference is this. If I shoot an explosive and it lands next to you and it doesn't explode till it hits the ground, then the ground is going to soak up some of that damage um, and it's going to have a limited range versus if I shoot something over your head and it explodes in the air and showers everything with shrapnel, that's going to do a lot more damage to certain targets. I think it's not just a lack of capability. I think it's because they're using these indiscriminately shell structures that airburst shells may not be what they want, but they've been using very antiquated stuff. And I imagine their stockpiles of artillery shells stretch back decades. And that's part of the reason why they're like, hey, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. You know, our stuff doesn't reach as long range and it isn't quite as accurate. But if we mass enough of it, then we can pound cities into dust and we can fix the soldiers within them enough that they can't move elsewhere. Um, However, some of the uh, NATO um, artillery systems being sent are uh, considerably more capable, both in range, accuracy and uh, time on target and the ability to pack and unpack them and move them around. So hopefully we will in what. I see is being a continuation of the ongoing artillery war. We will see uh, at least superiority by Ukrainians in some aspects, which will allow them to, you know, target and destroy Russian artillery first. Right. Brilliant. Okay. Thanks a lot. Colby, if you want to talk a little bit about it, maybe some of the self-propelled guns, things that I'm not as familiar with. I, I was just going to say the oldest uh, artillery system that I've seen used in this war is the D20, which dates back to 55. All of the SPGs are newer than that, I think. I don't think they're going to date any further back. Um, they're all slightly more modern. It's the towed systems are that are going to be the oldest. And then on this topic, a question I've had, which I've never really had conclusively answered, and I'd love for somebody to Tell me, um, what's the service life of these barrels in these older artillery systems that we've seen used? We know the Russians are utilizing a, frankly, huge amount of artillery. And like anything, they fire enough bullets down the tube, whether they're, you know, in a rifle or in an artillery system, especially in an artillery system, if you're using uh, more powder charges behind it or whatnot, you're going to wear the barrel out. doesn't mean the barrel is going to droop or explode. Um, but at some point it's going to become less accurate and any reasonable artillery crew is going to go, Hey, this is bad. You know, we need to stop and change barrels. How long that takes, how many shelves, uh, I understand it's probably going to be different if you're using like a zero power shell versus a five or a four or whatever. Um, but if somebody could give me a general premise on, is it a hundred shells? Is it a thousand shells? Is it 10,000 shells? Because I haven't seen. I think we had some artillery guys in here who were saying it's functionally impossible to do, you know, just change out an artillery barrel at the front line in any reasonable way. You do have to bring it back to more specialized equipment, even on these more fixed artillery. So what the supply chain looks like for that is something I'd be interested in because at some point, you know, the guns either have to stop firing or 
they're going to be degraded to the point that they're no longer as usable. Their range decreases, their accuracy decreases. And I've just never really been able to get a clear answer on that. And it's something that I know frighteningly little about. So if you do know something about that, either click that button in the lower left-hand corner, come on up, or uh, shoot a message, please. Trent took this question on the first or second time he was with us, I think, actually. I don't recall what his answer was. I don't think it was definitive, and I don't know that anybody can really give a definitive answer because there's a hell of a lot of factors that go into that. And the biggest unknown is just the quality of the make of these gun barrels, which is going to be the most 